0: I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything. But Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, I couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks. And it was love at first scratch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio, and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's Paw pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey, it's your coworker that you had a dream about who you will never tell what the dream was about, Allie Ward. Back, ologies. This is an ology you've likely never even heard of. It was invented just around the turn of the century when Y2K fears were big, eyebrows were thin, systems biology. It's only been around about 20 years in name. And the National Institutes of Health says that different labs define it differently, but at its core. You ready for this? Here it is. It's an approach in biomedical research to understanding the larger picture, be it at the level of an organism, tissue, or cell, by putting its pieces together. It's like detective work, but with math and computers and graphs and stuff. And I'd put money on at least one of you who have never heard of it before falling in love with it and becoming this type of ologist in the future. But before that gamble, let's thank everyone at patreon.com ologies for supporting the show. It costs $1 cool American dollar a month to join, and you can submit questions. Also, thanks Spotify for having us as your number one science podcast on there. Hot dang. Whoever thought, not me. Uh, We stay up in the charts thanks to every kind soul who leaves us ratings and reviews, like this one from Will Gallahue on Apple Podcasts, who wrote, this show is like a red carpet premiere with scientists instead of celebrities, and I just can't get enough. I'm glad you can't, because we have more for you in this episode, Will Gallahue, Okay, so this ologist and I, we met via Twitter. Last year, she wrote some really thought-provoking articles on the robotics scene in Pittsburgh and how errant... Delivery rovers cause a lot of problems for wheelchair users like herself, and she has written extensively about accessibility in STEM. She has a PhD in chemical engineering where she used data and math and modeling to figure out What the fuck happens in the body when we're infected with a virus like the flu, and what drugs might work best for whom? We recorded this while she was still in the throes of finishing her dissertation, but now this doc is off to Cambridge to start postdoc work at a little place called Harvard Medical School, and it's the systems biology department there. She is smart kind, funny, brilliant, and not at all a slacker. More on that later. So count your lucky stars. You're about to learn about mathematics, computational science, Excel curses, career pivots, accessibility, identity, genomics, CRISPR, soapboxes, science, and more with advocate, scholar, and systems biologist, Dr. Emily Ackerman. Her pronouns, she, her. Cool. And now you are a systems biologist, correct? I am. I mean,
1: (laughs) by my own definition, I'm a chemical engineer by training, but most chemical engineers don't want to do chemical engineering. So we do other stuff. And
0: my other stuff of choice is biology. When you say chemical engineering, what exactly does that encompass?
1: Chemical engineering... It's very broad. We always think of it as the movement of heat, mass, and energy. It's been around forever, and it hasn't changed in forever. So, like, the core curriculum that you learn is, like, transport and thermodynamics. And that hasn't changed in, like, a hundred years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I'm in the more biological area. There's also the energy area where people do alternative kind of energies and fuels, batteries, and then they also do things like solar or biofuels and things.
0: So her chemical engineering department focused on petroleum and fuels, but she didn't work with petroleum. Her work involved more living things. But you've always loved biology too? Yeah. 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 I, I love, it's
1: so cool. It's such a <laughs> mystifying place. At least to me.
0: <laughs> where did that start? Was it bird watching or was it documentaries about bugs? Or where did you start, you know, did you have a microscope growing up? Where did you start to get really interested in the natural world?
1: So being disabled and, and having like medical conditions, I've always found the body very interesting and kind of understanding the ways that mine is different. Mm-hmm. Has led me to kind of explore a lot of biology from like a younger age, I think. Once I got to kind of high school, when you really start learning and deciding what you want to do, I guess we force 16 year olds to decide what to do with their life. <laughs> it was like a very interesting thing to me, but um, the definitions of Types of engineering were, like, a real mystery to me, and I think for most people. So I chose chemical based on the fact that I liked chemistry, but I didn't want to do, like, lab science. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll do more math.
0: She says at 16, she thought, hey, math sounds like a good thing to commit to. Math will always be there for you. And math is in everything. It's all around us, like ghosts who makes sense, and have her back.
1: So I went into chemical engineering and then slowly migrated more toward biology when I realized it was way more interesting.
0: (laughs) And you, in order to be a biologist and in the biological sciences, there's a ton of patterns and math and chemistry that needs understanding, right? For sure. I mean my my type of biology is like I sat on a bench and I drew a picture of a mushroom because I'm not very gifted in the other That's way
1: okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there need to be people like you who also can do applied topology and a lot of words I don't understand which I understand is on your CV and I don't even under, know what topology is, but like, so how is how does like math and systems and patterns? How do you get to apply that to the natural world?
1: Yeah, it's really I, I think a lot about. I mean, the body specifically, the human body, um, and I specifically work with the immune system, mm-hmm. something that, like, the rest of your body is in a very Kind of precarious balance at all times, mm-hmm. um, and the only time you really notice it is when it's out of whack. Mm. You're sick, and your body is trying to compensate, so it starts giving you a fever, and um, you start mm-hmm. trying to cough and do all kinds of things to to get rid of it. That's really the d- definitive example for me of kind of how much we rely on math to exist but we don't think about it so (laughs) what's happening is that really your body is the the math is a spew like like things are out of balance there's too much of something or too little of something or even it showed up six hours too late um whether it's your your t-cells or something that you need to fight an infection or even that a gene doesn't get turned on. It's really an interesting kind of view of of math and we can use math to describe all of the relationships within ourselves and all of the interactions happening that kind of keep us alive. hmm Which is really, really cool.
0: <laughs> I I heartily agree on that. Yeah. Staying alive is on my cool list for sure. <laughs> <You're cooler. Staying laughs> alive. And if someone isn't sure what systems biology is and you have to describe it to them, how do you put such a big thing in such a small nutshell?
1: Yeah. Systems biology is... I like to think of systems biology as the Frankenstein of biology. Mm -hmm. It's very young. Most definitions you would probably see like popping up 20, 30 years ago. It's really the result of having huge amounts of data and needing to process it and trying to do it in a way that you get a better system view. So for example, you can invent algorithms to to understand it. You can make models of it. And the goal is that you get kind of this, this picture that you wouldn't get So I'm just doing an experiment. So Mm -hmm. if I want to understand the immune response, which is what I do, Mm -hmm.
0: um,
1: I take data from real mice and I try to represent it with math or to work backwards. If I don't understand really what's biologically happening, maybe I can find some math that fits it and I'd say, oh, well, then this must be what's happening. It must be... These two things, interacting, causing this. And one of like, the great things about what we do is that there's so much data uh, out just in the world that if you have questions, you can sometimes just find data to, to help you answer them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you see happening with COVID. There's this real huge emphasis on making data publicly available and Easy to use, mm-hmm. which is a great, has a great effect on the kind of scientific endeavor that I love.
0: So, Dr. Ackerman had analyzed infectious disease and influenza strains, but while getting her PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, she did a little pivot to a different virus you probably have not heard a lot about. It's called SARS CoV 2. Just an intro to it, J.K. So I was eating fistfuls of sourdough all through twenty twenty, and watching people make out on Outlander. But she was spending the pandemic trying to help us understand the pandemic while getting a PhD.
1: I used to work only with the flu. Now I work mm-hmm. with uh, COVID nineteen.
0: Mm-hmm. Heard of it? Heard of it? Making headlines? Yeah, yeah. I have
1: seen that. And so basically, my group deals with viral respiratory infection. the most part i have kind of two major kind of projects the first is trying to identify important proteins that we could use as drug targets and to do that i use network topology um, and analysis which is a very um, large scale like zoomed out view of a cell Mm -hmm. and then my other project is a very uh specific zoomed in view where I write kind of mathematic equations to try to understand the dynamics of the immune response, so the timing and the kind of magnitude of response and how that differs between, say, strains of the flu or between um, males and females or any kind of relationship in hopes of better treatment strategies um, better understanding of disease as a whole, because frankly, we don't have a great idea what's going on, mm-hmm. and just kind of better understanding so that we can better address viral infection.
0: How was that pivot? How much of you had to pivot your research to COVID? Yeah. Which, by the way, that's amazing that you're working on it. Like, Thank you, yeah. Thank you for doing that on behalf of, like, me and literally the world. Um, What was that pivot like for you? Was it exciting? Was it daunting? Was it really different from the flu?
1: It was a lot at once. When it hit, I realized that I could very easily apply the network study methods to to SARS-CoV-2. I did it, and it was just this, this giant whirlwind of, like, trying to get things out. It was... it's. It's very stressful mm-hmm. to be working under that kind of time restraint, kind of the magnitude of this like problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's kind of overwhelming. I bet. But um, it's really exciting at the same time to be able to help and contribute in the best way I know how. And It's been a really interesting make lemons out of lemonade opportunity. Mm-hmm. Or, that's not even the phrase, what is it? Make lemonade mm-hmm. out of lemons. I was yes. given lemons.
0: Tomato, tomato. When life throws tomatoes at you, make salsa. Science is just all about confronting setbacks head-on, piecing things together with the info we do have, and adapting to new circumstances. That's why it's high drama behind the scenes, and we love it. The problem when such a novel
1: virus emerges is that we don't even know what it looks like, and it's different for every virus. They all have kind of different evasion mechanisms or ways that they try to hide
0: themselves. And what does your work look like? Like, if you were to say, like, take your ologies host to work day. What is it? Is it like I picture? Okay, tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, okay. I picture. <laughs> I picture that you have like six computer monitors and it's like when you walk into like the control room at NASA and it's all spreadsheets and like minority report like blah, 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 and you have maybe several different input devices like mouses or keyboards or lasers and it's just numbers flying by and if I were there I would just be trembling in a corner being like how do you keep track of all the numbers? Yeah. Is that correct? Do a next then.
1: I've got two monitors. Okay. Very high up in the world. Um, two monitors, five cups of coffee, um, and two keyboards because I spilled a full cup of coffee onto my laptop last year. So that's not great. Um, but yeah, I get told a lot that it looks very scary because I have kind of like <laughs> learned to code from like, an old man who's been coding since coding existed and so <laughs> i i code like in the terminal in like the worst visual way and it looks very scary and people tell me all the time that it looks horrifying but yeah it's um you're not too far off, except it's it's less um less funded than you would think it, okay <laughs> just two was back like a hundred thousand dollars
0: <laughs> okay, so we take some funding away who was the who was the old man that taught you to code i picture like an old sailor in a park with uh with an ancient laptop
1: i did an internship with a pharmaceutical company and he's mm-hmm. he's very much like the daddest dad that ever dad had. <laughs>
0: he's just he's just doug
1: you know
0: <laughs> guy named doug. if anyone out there knows a very paternal guy named doug who has taught people to code Tell him I love him. Am I exaggerating? No. I love him. Yeah. I miss him. Do you dream in code at all?
1: <laughs> no, but I have dreamed about COVID and I've dreamed about, like, just school things in general. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible experience.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> Let's move on from nightmares to flim-flam, systems biology style.
1: So, um... I guess, like, that we spend all of our time, like, actively coding mm-hmm. is, like, the biggest thing. I spend most of my time either waiting for mm-hmm. code to run, it take, like, days, or um, Googling the same error code <laughs> in different ways, or downloading... Excel files of data and then searching for the one gene mm-hmm. that is the same as a date. So Excel like converts it to a date and then you oh. end up with like errors in your in your code because oh. yeah. Sept <laughs> four is my mortal enemy. <laughs>
0: Side note: Of course, I had to look this up, but sept four means septin four, and it's a protein that, in humans, is encoded by the sept four gene, which also reminded me of the meme, which is a Venn diagram of Excel and in cells, both incorrectly assuming everything is a date. It hurts. So good.
1: But the amount of time I spend actually writing code is very, very small in mm-hmm.
0: comparison are Are there moments where you've run data or run an algorithm or applied uh, something computational to see if it fits with data and it works? Like does your screen light up like in gold glitter? like what happens when that I oh, really? <laughs> when it works it's like, I stop crying
1: now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean there's a problem in systems, biology and more computational fields where. You don't always have validation for your answer. Maybe you need more data to prove that it's correct, or you have to very carefully design training sets and things to prove that you have actually done something. Mm -hmm. So it can feel a little unrewarding, but sometimes it's the other way around, and you're, you're fitting to data that already exists or... You have a way to validate
0: it. So sometimes it just points you down the path, but you're not quite to the destination yet. But at least you know that your work isn't a mess. Are you a person um, that is super organized and analytical in the rest of your life? Are you like a a person like friends go to with computational questions? Or are you like, I save that for work and I let the rest of my life be loosey-goosey?
1: I'm a little bit of a an organized person. <laughs> I'm a very like structured person. Like I love having a schedule, and I love having rules to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm that kind of person. Uh, at least rules that benefit me. Yeah. But I'm also known as like not in a serious way, but like the one who does math for a living, but isn't very good at it. Wait. What? Like, I'm always doubting my ability to do math.
0: Do people ever tell you to stop doubting your ability to do math because you're probably so much better at it than other people?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I need, like, constant reminders of
0: where I'm at, how I got this far. You mentioned something, too, about about disability in STEM. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you, you wish you knew kind of coming up that you... You wish other people in STEM with maybe any kind of disabilities knew?
1: Oh, yeah. So many things. I think. What do I want
0: them to know? (laughs) Sorry, that's a big question.
1: No, I mean, it's. This is what I really am like so, so passionate about. I think when I was. When I went to college, I was very unsure, like most. I think college students are mm-hmm. what they want to do or what they care about. I think one thing that is STEM particular is the fear that you, that like STEM isn't made for you in a very physical way, but also in a, um, there's this emphasis on working long hours, on kind of devoting yourself and sh- therefore, your body to the cause, whatever stem mm-hmm. cause you've chosen. And I guess what I would tell people is that that's, that's unhealthy and false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much of a push to to be a scientist or an engineer and to devote your whole self and it should be first. And I think what we know in the dis- disability community is that our Our bodies and our minds have to come first. And you can't do the science if your body's not there, right? So, and if you really want to be there, there has to be a way. So -hmm. if you need to change your schedule, if you need to ask for accommodations and things because you want to be there, that's, you are so in the right to do that. And there's always a way that you can get to it. When I... The reason I do computational work is that I am very weak. I'm very small. I weigh like 50 pounds. I can lift like half a pound to a pound on a good day. Um, And a lab is just not made for me in in any way. It it just will never work. Mm -hmm. And I knew that. And it's part of why I chose engineering. And when I got to college, I was just by chance kind of complaining to a professor about how I was a little bit upset that I felt that there was no opportunities for me to do research because it felt like my peers were doing research that was going to get them a grad school or a job and um, that I wasn't able to do it. And he was like, well, don't, don't you know anything about computational work?" And I was like, nope, (laughs) nobody told me about that. Uh, And he was like, oh, you got to meet this guy. And so I met my undergrad advisor, Dr. Kurt Brenneman, who does computational chemistry. And it was nothing like anything I'd ever learned, but I could do it anywhere, any time of day. It didn't involve lifting anything except my computer. and. It was such an opportunity that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know anyone else that was disabled, students or faculty. And so I really just had no idea that there's this whole world out there of what I consider it way more accessible to science. And so, one tip I would definitely say is to explore computational science. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool area and it's so much more accessible. With the timing and the physical demands of it, um, and it's super cool, and I want everyone to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that's so wonderful that just someone suggesting something like that can yeah. you know it's so funny that those moments in our lives are like, wait, I could do, I could do that. <laughs> do that, yeah.
1: And uh, <laughs> if I knew someone who was disabled, it probably would have been way more clear to me. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I would have had some kind of hope that I could could do it in the same way that my peers were just going up and asking for lab positions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am really passionate about not only like getting more people into STEM, but making it a, a place they can stay mm-hmm. and foster the next generation of, of kids like I was who... Had no idea what it, what the future could even look like. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so important that we make it equitable because right now it's definitely not.
0: Yeah. Anything that would make it more equitable? Any kind of moves that others could make or that you would love to see made?
1: Yeah. One big thing is just generally thinking about your lab space or your lab policies or your even your, your classroom policies can be designed in a way that make it easier for disabled students and researchers to exist in your space. So for example, if you're teaching class and your policy in this strange pandemic time is that you have to always have your video on and you have to show up to every Zoom, or you drop a letter grade, right? Mm -hmm. It's really difficult for a lot of us to attend every lecture on time when there's no difference between watching a recording of it and attending in real time. Mm -hmm. Or if your lab space, most lab spaces are disgustingly accessible. Mm -hmm. But what can you do? You can not load all of your pipette boxes And glove boxes and everything right inside the door so that like I can't even enter a lab. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And just a quick side note on identity and disability. So Dr. Ackerman says she prefers identity first language, i.e. she is a disabled person, rather than saying a person with a disability. And this discussion comes up in the disability community a lot. Many autistic folks prefer identity first autistic person rather than person with autism. So deaf person, blind person are also common choices. And Dr. Ackerman pointed me to a really great article written by Molly Callahan for Northwestern University, which explains, quote, for people who prefer person-first language, the choice recognizes that a human is first and foremost a person. They have a disorder, but that disorder doesn't define them. And for people who prefer identity-first language, the choice is about empowerment. It says that autism or a disability isn't something to be ashamed of. So now you know what person-first versus identity-first means, and when in doubt, just ask someone if they have a preference. Point being, disabled is not a bad word, and it's especially great to know this on the heels of July's Disability Pride Month, which celebrated the ADA, or Americans with Disabilities Act, which is an example of person-first language on that one, but Major point, being disabled is nothing to ever feel ashamed of. As my good friend, TV writer David Radcliffe says, quote, disability will be a part of everyone's life, whether through age, illness, or accident. So we are either disabled or we are temporarily non-disabled. And I love that sentiment. It's really true for everyone. And also David Radcliffe is David Radcliffe on Twitter, by the way. I'll link his Twitter on my website. It's great. And it's also... Always wonderful to read articles by or follow folks on social media who are passionate about communicating these issues. Honestly, the best prevention for accidentally saying ignorant shit is just to learn and listen more in the first place.
1: Boom. There, there are ways that you can minimize the kind of effect that you have on on your surroundings because the, the I think what people assume is that when they see someone who is disabled, they say, ah, they're disabled. But the truth is, you can't always see it. In fact, it's a lot of the time, it's very difficult to see when people need you to change the way that you kind of operate. Mm -hmm. And so instead of waiting for someone to ask for accommodation, just providing it is the best way to ensure that that person gets what they need without putting the onus on them to ask for you to change the way that you operate from your kind of position of power.
0: That makes so much sense and and thinking about it ahead of time instead of waiting until you've put someone into crisis. Right. Sort of.
1: And relying on that person to be able to convey to you that they need you to change Mm -hmm. is an even bigger barrier. A few, like Twitter is popping up recently of kind of community building for specifically disabled and STEM folks, Mm -hmm. and they're they're great. I love interacting with other people.
0: Listeners, patrons have questions for you. Can I lob some at you? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Side note: Those Twitter hashtags are disabled in STEM. That is a great one, and you can follow disabled STEM that account to listen to that community and to get more resources. And speaking of resources, before we lob questions, let's toss some money at a cause of theologists choosing. And Dr. Emily E. Ackerman asked that it go to HERD, which she told me via email is an abolitionist disability org that does a lot of work around the incarceration of deaf and disabled people. She says, our current carceral system is built from and runs on ableism and disproportionately affects the lives of BIPOC disabled people. And her does an incredible job of centering disability justice with abolitionist thinking. And they have trainings called The Revolution Must Be Accessible that I would urge people to take a look at, she says, especially those organizing in their own circles. So that donation went to beherdc.org. That is linked in the show notes. And that donation from Ologies in Emily's name was made possible by patrons of the show and sponsors who you may hear about now. squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, Here's the deal, so whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever Summer Adventure Series. So kids from 2 years old to teens can receive 6 hands-on science and art project kits over 6 weeks. They have something for everyone they have different topics for each age whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs and I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kiddos busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids KiwiCo.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at KiwiCo.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed, essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, your systemic biological questions. Let's start basic. Um, Dina wants to know, do you see chaos in the mathematical models that you work with? And if so, when? Yeah,
1: we see a lot of noise Mm -hmm. in our models because everyone is different. So for example, I use data from like triplicate mice experiments.
0: Okay, side note. I looked up triplicate mice and it's not a type of mouse, I found out, but rather experiments run in triplicate using mice. So more runs of the experiment means more data points. And then, thanks to this episode, I now picture data points like coins or mushrooms in a video game, just like, blink, 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 like, get that data. Just shove it in your pockets. Also, if you're still staring off thinking about the mousies, we address perspectives on animal testing and its future later in the episode. Anyway.
1: And even within those three mice, there is so much variation and it causes a lot of mathematical issues a lot of unstable systems the the nature of of biological systems is feedback everything is a feedback system and so when you make very small changes to components of that system you can get some really out of proportion results Mm. and so yeah we see a lot of Problems with with noise and things like that.
0: I love that chaos and noise are sort of correlated. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I don't know the exact, like, mathematical definition of chaos
0: mm-hmm.
1: off the top of my head, but I'm willing to bet that, that we
0: see it. Chaos, noun, behavior so unpredictable as to appear random, owing to great sensitivity to small changes in conditions. So, little stuff makes things go sideways the shorthand is the, the butterfly effect
1: honestly chaos is in everything especially our bodies itself.
0: right um, and Caitlin Allen first time question asker wants to know and this is specific but if you have a favorite mechanism in organic chemistry
1: ooh I don't because okay. I barely passed organic chemistry <laughs> <Okay. laughs> it's funny there's There's this kind of, like, assumption that if you're a chemical engineer, you must be very good at, like, advanced chemistry. Mm -hmm. I haven't thought about chemistry in years, except for when I think about, like, protein binding, but that's a very specific kind of of chemistry.
0: If you're like, I need a whole episode about molecular proteins and also being a queen of SCICOM, see the molecular biology episode with Dr. Raven, the science maven Baxter. Okay, onward. I thought Joe Porvito has a great question and it It was seconded by Will Pliwa, Erica Periandri and Onyx Casale wanted to know if we could use viruses to cure a disease rather than cause one.
1: Yeah, there's some really cool work that goes on with this. I think it's called Oncovirology or something. Mm. I made that word up, but it's, it's probably close. It's the idea that you can treat tumors with modified viruses. So what happens when you get a, a virus enters your cell is that it triggers this kind of series of events where your body says, oh, I need to start fighting. You know, I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta mm-hmm. do something. Are we in danger of a howl breach? So it um, alerts all the surrounding cells with these small molecules called interferon. Mm-hmm. And they trigger all of these events that start bringing in immune cells and different immune processes to fight the virus. And the idea is that, let's say we could take all the scary stuff out of viruses and just leave the, the stuff that our cells recognize and then put them near the tumor. And our cells would say, oh, there's something bad, like we have to fight it. It would start that interferon response. But instead of fighting a virus, because it's harmless, it would mm-hmm. fight the tumor, essentially. Oh, I don't do anything like that, but I have read about it, and I think it is super cool. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things you can do as far as messing with the genomics of the viruses and kind of knocking out the harmful stuff and using them to deliver parts of genes or um, just kind of cause controlled havoc. I think it looks promising
0: and really cool. Oncovirology or tumor virology, it is. It's a thing. So if anyone knows of a good oncovirologist, please holler at me, at your dad ward. I'm all ears. Zoltan Sazi says, this is very interesting and an important scientific area. And question, is it possible to estimate with epidemiologic models... I don't know why I can't say that. How likely it is for animal influenza strains like pigs and birds to cross the species barrier into humans, and if that happens, is it possible to guess how well humanity will do if another big flu pandemic breaks out? Like, is it is that a number crunching kind of a question?
1: To my knowledge, no one is crunching that number. Uh Oh, it's such a random event because it really just takes one, one event of of mutation and then jump from an animal to a human. I'm sure statistically you could figure out some kind of estimate. This is one of those Fermi problems where you do like back the envelope calculations it's like,
0: mm-hmm. when will be the next pandemic? Uh-huh.
1: You could definitely try doing that. I've never thought about it.
0: Ah, thinking about the next pandemic. Maybe let's get through this one first. I don't know. I hope everyone's out there getting vaccinated if they can, because your health is worth it, and so are others' health.
1: It's been interesting. As someone who, I, if I got COVID, I would be in in very bad shape,
0: mm-hmm. just
1: given the nature of my health. It's it's been interesting to see the way that people kind of, um, I guess, write off other people in their, in their estimation of danger.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're, they're thinking about, oh, I'll be fine. I i don't get very sick usually or whatever. But they're not giving a lot of thought to people like me who can't leave their house at all. Um, mm-hmm. And when they do, I'm at a super high risk and what steps they could be taking towards helping people like me or their grandparents, or their mom who just had surgery or whatever. Mm -hmm.
0: This was actually recorded before the vaccines were widely available, when the best we could do was distance and mask up and wash our groceries. And as the Delta variant picks up right now and the masks go back on, just do what you can out there to protect each other. Some of the people you're protecting are the very people working on the science to get us through this, like Emily. <laughs> just be like, do you realize what she's doing? <laughs> I am trying <laughs> You're like the one that's vexing it. Uh um, Oh, Michael McLeod has a question, first-time question asker. What are some advancements being made now using systems biology and synthetic biology approach that may not have even been possible 10 or 15 years ago?
1: Ooh, yeah. Well, we're always kind of coming up with new kind of experimental methods that give us better data, which is, is a big barrier to addressing these kinds of
0: problems. Emily says that better imaging helps system biologists have a more accurate grasp of pathologies, which is helpful for number crunching and analysis. So what does this mean for you and your hot pod?
1: Similarly, like putting humanized versions of cells into um, mice or rabbits and things so that we can get a closer idea of what the, the human response would be in a rabbit where we can test it well. That's a fairly new concept that's really kind of advancing our understanding of specifically human response. And then on the computational side, the more data we have, the more advanced algorithms we can develop and the models that we build are more kind of biologically accurate, more encompassing at least. And my goal kind of in everything I do is better personalization of, of treatment. So how can we better understand late-stage infection behavior based on early signs or early oh. dynamics of, of immune cells and cytokines and things?
0: And in the various coronasodes we've done over the last like year and a half, which it seems longer. But we've mentioned that cytokines are these small proteins that allow your cells to communicate messages to each other, essentially. And a cytokine storm is like your immune system's phone just blowing up, just going on overdrive and having system-wide inflammation that occurs. And it can be pretty dangerous, especially for COVID patients, sometimes leads to organ failure. And systems biologists help figure things out like, okay, based on a patient's day two COVID data, who's going to be in the ICU on day 10, and what medications are more likely to work on a system-wide inflammatory response. So she's working on that. So people who are think that math is maybe not their thing, or systems biology is not their thing, it's really like essentially a crystal ball. You're essentially... Like a wizard. <laughs> like you, if you can oh, crunch yeah. the numbers. You can predict the future. Like what's cooler like, than that? Like That's like, the goal. Right? It's like the yeah. magic eight ball an of but based completely on math and, and right. accuracy.
1: And it's kind um, of almost like waving your hands and like clearing a weird fog. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're like, where are these two proteins doing? And then I like wave my hands and then like, <laughs> They're finding that yeah. Ah, that's so cool.
0: Speaking of looking into the future... Oh, and I have one more one more question, and it and it deals a little bit with what you were just talking about with animal models, too. And two different patrons, Ruby Ostrich and Erica Periandri, both asked if you see us in the future moving away from animal models by using like bioengineered human models or just by using math. Um, and Ruby says, I really struggle with science and animal cruelty. And Erica says, as a vegan and a scientist, using animal models kind of hurts my heart. But maybe bioengineering or systems biology might be able to kind of get around that. Will quantum computing help us solve that? Where is it going, do you think?
1: We're definitely headed in the right direction, I think, as far as we're always going to need data. Well, so it depends on your kind of application. I could see some of them going much closer to no animal models. I'm thinking like if you work with a very specific tissue type and you only look at that, you could you're probably much closer to going animal-free. And so it's a much harder question, but I do completely agree. And to some extent, it's it's difficult to put out of my head <laughs> the animals that we have to use. As computational researchers, I don't have to do it myself, which I'm thankful for because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'd be a big chicken. Yeah.
0: I think I'd be a big chicken, too.
1: Yeah. And I have friends who do it. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. We really do everything with the the least amount of data that we can possibly scrape by with Mm -hmm. 90% of the time because it's so hard to get data. And so we really do try to minimize Mm -hmm. the amount of data that we use for that among many reasons. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, as long as I've taken us on a detour to bummer town, what is the thing that is the most upsetting thing about what you do or something unexpected that you just hate about systems biology? Any bones to pick or any grievances to air? Like, feel free to have a soapbox.
1: You know, I do have a large soapbox. (laughs) So this is like something that I try to be vocal about whenever I can. The pervasiveness of eugenics in disease research Hmm. can be very tough to be a disabled researcher and human and be exposed to. Mm -hmm. And now that this is a systems biology specific problem, there's a lot of assumptions that go into biological work as far as that people with diseases would not like to be the way that they are or that there's some kind of inherent goodness in insulting people in any ways uh, based on genetics or some inherent truth, I should say. And so it's, it's tough to watch people who do disease research and have probably not much exposure to those people mm-hmm. who are affected and from an activism standpoint it's it's really scary to watch a lot of movement in that direction as a positive change for example like last year i think when the the genetically modified children were exposed in china i don't know if you remember when that yeah yeah was like a thing but for background they basically had genetically modified the embryos so that the children didn't have whatever genetic disorder the parents had. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the science community, that was, like, enough of a red alarm for people to be like, no. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) On the whole, in kind of the world, it got a lot of traction as, like, is this the future? Mm -hmm. Are we going to, like, eradicate disease? And... It's just such a harmful mentality to think that people would be better off without their genetic disorders. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are things about it that are valid to think about, like life-threatening illnesses and things like that. That's a conversation that should be had by the people with those disorders. Mm -hmm. But the harmful nature of those conversations happens when it's just the people in power doing the science or funding the science or spreading the science who really don't consult with the people that are on the other end. And when you talk to the disability community, there's this huge push with an advocacy to call out these kind of eugenics for what they are because they're, they're so accepted by the public as something that's good because it's eradicating something that's implicitly bad to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That we don't get heard when we say, I don't want to be different, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be genetically modified, and I wouldn't want my children to be genetically modified and things. So I do wish that people would be much more cognizant of the ableism and the eugenics that are so deeply ingrained into science. Mm-hmm. And listen for, for people calling them out and people like me. And there's a lot of us who are actively out there yelling about it. But yeah, it's been really interesting to see the way that non-disabled people have framed the conversation about disability and genetics in a scientific way.
0: Where can people listen to your voices and, and get a more balanced picture of that. Yeah, the great
1: thing about the disability community is that we are all super online Mm -hmm. because of the nature of our lives. We organize virtually. Mm -hmm. So Twitter is a great place. I would recommend any written piece that is written specifically by a disabled person. Yeah, and I think just being cognizant that the opinions that really matter on this debate, which should not be a debate for most people, only for mm-hmm. us who are affected. Yeah, we are the ones who matter in, in kind of having our voices heard. Um, there's a lot of articles written by people who have no connection beyond understanding CRISPR. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very disappointing to see that platform be given to them when they don't frankly know what they're talking about.
0: This is, of course, a really important topic, and this conversation with Dr. Ackerman really opened up my own eyes to the issue, and she sent me an email after we recorded because she just wanted to expand on it and get her thoughts down, and she wrote, quote, CRISPR and gene editing are absolutely incredible scientific technologies that have revolutionized the way we're able to address biological problems. She says, I know that as a scientist, there are a million ways to use it for good. However, in combination with the ableism ingrained in our societal teachings, blatant or unrecognized, it stands as a not-so-far-fetched weapon against the identities and the lives of the disabled. The failure of the scientific community to widely condemn the detrimental idea of editing our very disabled existence and the suggestion that it represents an optimal future to do so. Combined with a very extensive history of eugenics leads me to actively fear my colleagues' potential role in the downfall of the community I love so much under the misguided ableist idea that all those with disabilities would be better off without them, she says. The day the Nobel Prize was announced." for genetic scissors, a tool for rewriting the code of life, Dr. Ackerman continues. My Twitter feed was 50% scientists who were elated and 50% disabled people who were saddened, angry, and scared. The science community needs to bridge this divide and seek out voices of disabled individuals themselves, not their families, who are proclaiming their joy and renouncing the idea that there's something wrong to be fixed. If we don't have this very personal conversation now, she says, It'll soon be too late. And she also sent a few great articles on identity, and I'll link them on my website at allyward.com slash ology slash systems biology. That will be linked to the show notes. I'll also include some hashtags and some articles that she recommends. So yes, gene editing on humans. Not as simple an issue as just putting an Instagram filter on your vacation photos.
1: I mean, when I say that it, it's, it's very rooted in ableism in that it's a projection of of like, fear, I think, mm-hmm. that's what, how I see it. There's people that are worried about genetic, that what if they had a genetic disease, or what if they have a child with a genetic disease, and how that would affect their lives. But it's really, you know, there's, it's great. I love being disabled. <laughs> <laughs> and I I know that everyone does not and I fully respect, Um, anyone's right to say that they do or don't. But too often we don't hear the voices of people who love being disabled.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Because we don't get to hear those voices, can you tell people what you do love about it?
1: Yeah, um, I love being... I love the, the view that I have on life and how inherently different it is. I think that there are things that I think about all day every day as far as getting my basic needs met and how I'm going to plan my next career steps and like that's the full gamut of like you know the most disabled thoughts are like how am I going to pee tomorrow (laughs) or like do I have all the medicines I need and how am I going to get them if I can't leave my apartment to what am I going to do next year when I have to graduate? <laughs> right, mm-hmm. like the, These are like the full spectrum of like my most disabled specific thoughts to like my most generalized everyday, all of my peers have them thoughts. Mm-hmm. But I love that my, my view on those like everyday questions that everybody has to answer is so tainted by my disability in a good way. It's that I'm thinking about the city's accessibility and I'm thinking about the political climate and I'm thinking about all of these kind of factors that I think are going to help me make a better choice, but I, it's because I have to think about
0: them. It sounds like a a richer experience because not only do you have to consider your needs, but it also... Must make you considerate of other people's needs across many different spectra, you know?
1: For sure, yeah. And it's, I love the intersectionality of, of the disabled community. There is one of everyone, and then some. And um, it's so easy to find someone who is the complete opposite of you and someone who shares so much with you in a way that I don't find in in everyday spaces because it, it, there's just so much more to talk about and to <laughs> to have an experience about. It's just so exciting to meet other disabled people and learn so much about like what it's like to be them.
0: And what about systems biology? What do you love the most? I love
1: thinking about the scale of it. And I've had the Network Project, which is very, zoomed out, I look at like all proteins of the cell at once, and like very generalized, yes or no, do they interact? What can we learn from that? And then I can look at just like singular interactions or a very small pathway of interactions and the the details of such a zoomed in view are Mm -hmm. just so, there's so many details. And you can always go smaller, and they're so interconnected that on a tissue level and a whole body level just very small changes at at such a small like micro level can cause huge differences in what our body does and how we like perceive ourselves i just love thinking about (laughs) that view kind of the way i love thinking about space but it makes me (laughs) really afraid when I think about space. <laughs> when I think about my body, at least there's like a, a small kind of limit that I can think about.
0: That's funny. I found out there's a word for that called cosmic vertigo when you just start Ooh. thinking about how big space is and you're like, whoa. But as you were as you were saying that, it was funny because I was like picturing you in this like tiny rocket ship and you're able to like go from like the outer edges of the universe to like all the way zoomed Ooh. into like molecules. And systems biology is essentially like the spaceship where you can just like Hyperspeed, like, yeah. and all these different perspectives, which is so cool.
1: It's very cool. Um, you can just do whatever
0: you want. So definitely follow Emily E Ackerman on Twitter. Although her display name, I take issue with Emily Slackerman. The only bone I have to pick with you is that your um, <laughs> your handle is like um, Emily. It's Emily A Ackerman, but it's Emily. Slackerman Ackerman. And I was like, highly doubt the Slackerman. Uh,
1: (laughs) That's actually a very long story. A internet troll bequeathed that to me. No. I took it and just ran with it. I was like, this is how I want to be. Like, I want this on my gravestone. I want to be known as this for the rest of my life. Like, oh my they God, thought they were me. like really burning me. Actually,
0: <laughs> they gave me the greatest gift I've ever received. <laughs> Emily Slackerman Ackerman. Okay, now I love it even more. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being on. I'm so excited that I now know what systems biology is and how cool it is. I hope that
1: everybody knows
0: now. They do. Well, well, um, like, um, like that uh, SNL
1: skit with like, the hottest club in New York City. But it's systems biology. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh my God. So ask systems biological people simple questions, and you'll get to know your world and the people making it better, better. And you can follow Dr. Emily E. Ackerman, who is at Emily E. Ackerman aka Slackerman on Twitter and her website is Emily E. Ackerman and if you'd like to hear her on more podcasts you can check out the Disability Visibility Project hosted by Alice Wong and Dr. Ackerman is on episode 91 talking about disabled engineers and I'll link that on my website too as well as a link to HERD where we sent a donation today at Emily's kind suggestion and we are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram and I'm Allie Ward with one L on both so do be our friends. Thank you Aaron Campbell Talbert for adminning the Ologies podcast Facebook group full of very swell humans. Thanks Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis for managing merch. There are also sisters who host the podcast, You Are That, which is very funny. Thank you Emily White of the thewordery.com for making our transcripts. Those are up for free to anyone who wants or needs them. Uh, thank you Caleb Patton for bleeping episodes in case anyone needs those. We also have new family-friendly episodes called Smologies, and they are classroom safe. A uh, new one is due out this Thursday thank you Noel Dilworth and Susan Hale for keeping the trains running and helping with social media posts thank you Kelly Dwyer for making aliward.com she's available to make your website at kellyrdwyer.com uh, thank you to my legally wedded hunk and editor Jared sleeper of mind Gem media for making these episodes into the dark of night and of course to Stephen Ray Morris of the podcast see Jurassic right and the podcast. Uh, Nick Thorburn wrote the theme song and is in a very good band called Islands, which has a new album out right now called Alomania. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. Sometimes they're embarrassing. Sometimes they're things you don't want to hear. This one's a life hack. I want you to know it. So I'm going to say it with my mouth. Okay. So take a pitcher, right? Fill it all the way up with ice, juice three limes into it, and then you fill it with water. And for some reason, Lime water is like a thousand percent more refreshing than lemon water. I don't know why. It's all the summer delicious of a margarita without being hammered or sugar crashing. So love some lime water. All about it. Make yourself some canned lime juice, bottled lime juice. Get away from me with that. doesn't count. Just get some real limes. Get one of those citrus smasher squeezers. Whew! Your life's gonna change. Also, Nightshade 3621 and Yo Gabba Gabba Yo. I read your reviews too and one, congrats, that's amazing, Nightshade. Two, yo Gabba Gabba, I'm a supermarket witch, and I can see you. Okay, stay tuned for new SMologies on Thursday. Okay, bye-bye. Hackadermatology, homobiology, cryptozoology, lithology, and meteorology. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll
1: just think I'm weak.
0: Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel